Rise and shine for National Biscuit Month with Hardy's Famous Buttermilk Biscuits. Made with love from scratch, fresh all morning. It's not the easy way, but it's the right way. Hardy's goodness in the making. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. As always, we're so grateful you're going to spend some time with us. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here. And Seton, coming up, we have an interview that you uh, did with someone. Give us a little tease. Yes, we were fortunate enough to interview Patrick Carr, who is Anthony Cook's attorney, uh, and he represents him in the boating crash litigation. Okay. Speaking of that, there's news on that. The civil litigation is set to start in mid-August in Hampton County, and there's a consent order. That's interesting, Seton. Yes, the judge granted a consent order giving leave to Alec Murdoch to be deposed in this litigation. So that was interesting. Yes, always interesting when Alec Murdoch might appear outside of prison, just to see if there's any changes and just to see him in public is of of special note. And I would imagine anytime he's going to be in a courtroom, there's going to be a lot of people and cameras in there as well. And speaking of old Alec, there are more criminal charges rolling on down from the federal level. Yes, Alec Murdoch has been indicted federally. He has 14 counts of money laundering, five counts of wire fraud, two counts of conspiracy to commit fraud, and one count of bank fraud. And all of these kind of seem to be pretty similar to the charges we've seen in the state court. They just keep that total going. They just keep seeming to add on uh, charge after charge after charge. And Elk's attorneys issued a statement saying, quote, Alec has been cooperating with the United States Attorney's Office and federal agencies in their investigation of a broad range of activities. We anticipate that the charges brought today will be quickly resolved without a trial. Okay, so this is, I'm sure, what John Snyder has been talking about over the last few episodes and weeks. Part of that where Alec is wheeling and dealing is probably to try to get him in some sort of decent fed pen. Yes, I do think that that is where he's going. And I I spoke with an attorney yesterday, and it's not really clear where he would spend his time. Both sides kind of have to agree. And the optics of him going to what people consider club fed would potentially be an issue but I've also been told not all federal jails are equal. Some aren't mm-hmm. as cushy as people would like them to believe. I mean, we hear these stories about Ghislaine Maxwell learning to play pickleball and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. But I don't believe that necessarily all federal prisons are the same. Or easy peasy for, you know, because of Alec being a convicted double murderer, there is going to be the controversy of putting him anywhere that appears to be less than a dungeon. Uh, (laughs) And also you wonder what this cooperation is involving. Is it involving other people? How many people are involved in Ellick's crimes financially? Yeah, it does make you wonder if there are other people he may implicate in some of these crimes. Is it also possible that he is starting to speak about where some of the money is? Because it's possible he has some hidden money somewhere. 
that he has claimed not, but if you're wheeling and dealing, maybe he's coming up with some. And also, I wonder if no one's mentioned this at all, but he still has those drug charges hanging out there somewhere. And allegedly running with Eddie Smith, is he going to roll on some drug people? Yeah, that's true. But we also heard from the attorney general's office, they released a statement and they are still planning to prosecute the state crimes. They said they're grateful for the FBI for their tireless work on the case and to South Carolina Attorney General's Office, South Carolina's Law Enforcement Division, for their work to hold Alec Murdoch and those who enabled him accountable in our state system. We remain committed to doing our part to further that effort in the federal system. So, I don't know, it's 102 criminal charges. No, we're up to 124 now, actually. Yeah, I think Michael DeWitt put on his Twitter something about, he did some Murdoch math to, to put together how many charges he now has pending. It is a lot. So also, we uh, need to talk about Alex's buddy and co-conspirator, alleged co-conspirator, Corey Fleming. He's been charged federally. Uh, he was the main player with Alec in taking the money from the Satterfields. Yes, he's his buddy, and he actually has state charges that are set to begin September 11th. And again, the state says they are proceeding with those. Um, But in these federal charges, they concede that Fleming did not know about this fake bank account or the plans to steal the Satterfield money. He is anticipated to plead guilty to wire fraud, which carries a maximum sentence of five years. And he's got this plea deal, and in return, he's expected to provide testimony. And the government in this deal says that they will recommend Fleming not serve any of his term in South Carolina state prisons. But we've also had a lot of questions about the sentencing of Russell Lafitte. Mm -hmm. He was the banker who has been convicted federally. He still has a pending appeal. And Drew Tripp with was ABC News 4 tweeted that, I guess, they were supposed to have sentencing this month, but that has been pushed back to later this summer. And a proposed sentencing memo was drafted recently for both sides to review. Prosecutors have asked for impact statements. And Judge Newman back uh, with a report from Fitz News. Talk about that scene. So... During the hearing, a lot of the exhibits that were deemed sensitive, crime scene photos, and all of those sorts of things were sealed during the hearing. But apparently there were two exhibits that were erroneously not put under seal. They were body cam footage from some of the first responders. Um, And previously, both sides agreed to put these under seal. And Judge Newman is set to rule on this, but will folks with Fitz News questions whether the public has the right to see these materials in some form or fashion. And they, Fitz News and some other media agencies actually have this footage. Right. They just haven't released it. No, they haven't released it. And I think some of the media are saying that, you know, they used this material to kind of corroborate some of the witness testimony. Right. And, and you know, there, there was a couple of images that, during the trial, weren't supposed to get out and did. Uh, but this is even more so than what we've seen, those little bit of shady footage that has been released, not released intentionally, but came out of the trial. 
And I don't think anybody wants to see really the photos of the description of what Paul and Maggie's injuries were. Nobody really probably wants to see that. I think people do. You do? Oh, sure. There's a lot of people out there that want to see that stuff. They, well, some people want just because they're you know looky lose and they want to see gross things and and gruesome things and horrible things. Others might say, well, I'd like to to look at it to understand the whole theory of the angles of the shot and things like that. That makes sense to me. I'm, I can get it. I'm personally very squeamish. I don't want to see any of it. But if you are somebody who is a sleuth and you want to see the angles, maybe that would make sense. Yes. And I mean, I'm not sure where I, I stand on it. I get the idea of what uh, Will is saying from Fitz News, that public right to see things that are entered into a public trial and... The, the idea of that is people can't hide things if you release them. And I also understand the privacy of the family. Right, right. Uh, Judge Newman's going to hear that on the 26th. You might be listening to this pod. He's already have ruled on that. Um, I'm thinking it's a possibility he might say, I need to think about this some more and push it off a little bit. So we take a break. Uh, when we come back, Seton is an interview with one of the attorneys involved in the Mallory Beach boating accident. I was not here. I, Mom passed away, so I was in, uh, in Charleston. But she handled it, and it's next. We are so pleased to have on Patrick Carr. He is the attorney for Anthony Cook. And I spoke with him after, I think it was not this past episode, the episode before, where our legal analysts thought that Parker's had a good argument for summary judgment. Well, since then, Judge Hall has denied the summary judgment. And my first question for you is, why do you think that was the right call? Well, certainly that was the correct ruling. In South Carolina, our law is uh, very favorable to the plaintiff or the claimant insofar as summary judgment is concerned. Summary judgment is a very rare and extreme remedy reserved for only cases where not only is there no dispute as to what the facts of the case are, but also no dispute as to how those facts apply to the law or how the law applies to those facts. And so in, in this case, um, not only are there some disputed issues of fact in terms of what happened and who's responsible, but importantly, uh, what those facts mean when compared against our alcohol sales law in South Carolina. And clearly there is evidence in the case that the law with respect to you must not sell alcohol to persons under the age of 21 years, that was violated. And that is under our law when you violate a safety statute, that is negligence per se. And the only question that would remain for a jury to determine is, was that improper sale of alcohol a proximate cause of the crash and the harm that resulted to the boat occupants? And so the issue of there being a causal connection between this safety statute violation and the, the death and injuries that resulted from the boat crash, it, it, the, the issue of a causal connection is always an issue of fact for a jury to determine. You mentioned South Carolina alcohol sales laws. How do they differ from other states? Well, I don't know that I've studied other states' alcohol sales laws as closely as I have South Carolina. I mean, I, I practice exclusively in South Carolina. 
in South Carolina, we have laws that say you must not, may not sell alcohol to persons under the age of 21. And so that's what the law says. And, and it's, it's been somewhat uh, surprising and distressful for, for those of us involved in these cases to hear others uh, suggest or opine that somehow this convenience store operator could, could get away with it or not be held responsible for an undisputed underage sale of alcohol. The law says you may not sell to persons under the age of 21, period. It does not say, but you can do it if they had a really good fake ID. I have teenagers, and it's a difficult situation because they do try to get away with things. How do you feel that Parkers can prevent sales to underage people? We know we know that persons under the age of 21 will make poor decisions or engage in dangerous conduct if they're allowed to consume alcohol. That's why it is a restricted sale item. Uh, those who are fortunate enough to have permits to sell alcoholic beverages in our state, they have to do so responsibly because they're allowed to profit off the sale of this restricted item. And they have to exercise due diligence to make sure they don't sell it to the wrong purchasers. And in this case, and in many others, you know, it's far more scrutiny is required than simply scanning the ID to see if it's a valid ID. You know, there's this false narrative that has been set forth that says where they're trying to argue that, well, Paul Murdahl used his brother's ID. His brother was over the age of 21, and they're both white males with red hair. When the clerk scans it and it, the, the electronic scanner says it's a valid ID, what more should the clerk have done? Well, that's preposterous. I mean, if that's the standard, then you know, my teenage son can take my uh, neighbor's, my female 65-year-old neighbor's ID down to the convenience store and scan it and buy beer with it. That's clearly not what the law requires. Uh, the law requires a reasonable attempt to verify that the person presenting the identification card is the person, the person on the ID matches the person standing in front of the clerk. And you can do that with, you know, really two seconds of inquiry. If you just match the height and weight alone, that's simple to do. I mean, I'm, I'm roughly the same size as Paul Myrtle. I'm five foot seven, 170 pounds. I think when Paul um, bought the beer that day in February of 2019, he was five foot seven, 150 pounds or so. But if I handed the clerk an ID that said I was over six feet tall and over 200 pounds, you know, should that clerk make use of that information that's right there in front of his or her eyes and, and deny the sale or otherwise ask me questions about why my height and weight don't match the ID? I mean, that's a very simple exercise. I think what you're saying is possibly the clerk was not properly trained to ass uh, assess this license. Yeah, we, we believe the evidence will show that this particular employee of the convenience store was not properly trained. Um, we think the evidence will show that Parker's convenience stores, they have a very large presence. I think they have over 70 stores in the Southeast and, you know, they're wildly successful financially. So they can certainly afford to have the very best gold standard in terms of um, training procedures and, and alcohol sales policies. But it's one thing to have a policy adopted and written down on paper. 
And it's another thing to actually implement it and train your team members to follow it. This clerk clearly was not trained and, and showed zero remorse for that. She basically, uh, if I recall correctly in her deposition, she testified that she would do it the same way again over and over and not even bother to check the height and weight and not even bother to uh, ask for an alternative uh, means of verifying identification when uh, a gentleman named Paul Murdoch hands her a, a credit card or a debit card to make this purchase. And the card says Margaret Murdoch on it. We have spoken before the height and weight thing that's self-reported in South Carolina. But I do feel like the use of a different credit card to me is the biggest issue and sh- should have probably been a red flag. Absolutely. It, it certainly should have been a red flag. And you know, we think the evidence in the case is going to show they chose this particular convenience store because they had gotten it there successfully previously. Um, another of the of both passengers, I believe Miley Altman, she bought alcohol that same day, a mere hour or so before Paul Murdoch did, uh, with a an ID that was not hers. Well, it's been reported that SLED did not cite Parker's for an alcohol violation because Paul Murdoch and Miley Altman bought alcohol at this particular location. Do you feel like this exonerates them in any way? Absolutely not. So in South Carolina, in a civil lawsuit, the evidence of a criminal statutory violation is not admissible. Um, you know, it's no different than if you run a red light and you get in a car crash and you hurt somebody. Well, whether or not you got a speeding ticket is irrelevant. Okay. The, the plaintiff or the injury victim still has to prove their case in terms of damages and causation and fault and those things. But whether or not the state chooses to prosecute a crime is of no consequence. I mean, God bless our law enforcement folks. They, they're strapped with limited resources and they can't prosecute every single crime. And, and whether they choose to issue violations in certain circumstances and not others is a, of no consequence. In fact, uh, we've done some discovery in the case on this very issue because of this false narrative promoted by the convenience store that, well, gosh, we didn't get an alcohol violation from SLED, therefore we should not be held responsible civilly, which is completely preposterous. Well, does SLED agree with your take that Parker's was not exonerated? We've interviewed and deposed David Leslie uh, a sled supervisor who was in charge of these alcohol sales violations. And he was asked under oath, did you exonerate Parker's in this situation? And he said, no, absolutely not. You know, the fact that they chose not to issue a $500 alcohol sales violation is not equivalent to exoneration at all. Uh, look at it from the standpoint of, uh, let's say, you had too much to drink last night at a restaurant and you drove home uh, under the influence, but you made it home safely. Well, the fact that you weren't caught and you didn't get a ticket for DUI doesn't mean that you weren't driving while you were impaired and you were violating the law. Will Parkers be able to bring in this information that they did not receive any sort of citation from SLED about the sale? Would that be admissible in this in this case? No, I, I don't believe it's admissible at all. I think you know, our evidentiary rules in South Carolina are very clear that the, the issuance of such a violation or the absence of the issuance of such a violation is not admissible in the civil case. There's 
there's clear case law on that in South Carolina. Let's move on to assumption of risk. There's been a lot of talk about this and whether the boaters assumed risk by their actions that night. Give us your thoughts. Sure. So assumption of risk is sort of a misnomer. Um, That is something that has been sort of judicially abandoned in South Carolina. Uh, There's an important case called Davenport versus Cotton Hope years ago, I think in the early 90s, that basically said, so assumption of risk is no longer a an absolute defense under South Carolina law. It's basically consumed under a a different item called comparative negligence, where if you have an event, an accident that happens, and perhaps it's more more than just one person's fault. You know, maybe the injury victim somehow brought about uh, the injury to themselves through their own misconduct. You you could compare the relative percentages of fault to the the wrongdoer and the victim, if they both in fact contributed to it. And comparative negligence has been around around for a long time. In our state, we have a modified system of comparative negligence where if you are 51% or more at fault in bringing about the injury or the incident, then you would be prohibited from recovery. But if you are 50% or less, then you're still allowed to recover. However, in this situation, because the case involves the sale of alcohol, I do not believe that that comparative negligence defense or scheme is in any way applicable or valid. The South Carolina Uniform Contribution Among Joint Tort Feasers Act, it basically says in cases involving sale of alcohol, comparative negligence is not applicable. So you're saying it doesn't matter that they were also all drinking. That should not play a factor at all because of their youth and age? Correct. Again, by the simple reason that it's foreseeable that if you sell alcohol to an underage purchaser, they're going to make bad decisions. I have children similar ages to all of these boaters. I didn't know you did. I grew up boating in this area, and it was really heartbreaking to see this video of Anthony and Mallory walking together moments before they got on the boat. How is your client doing? How is Anthony doing at this moment? Yeah, thank you. Anthony is doing, you know, I think as well as can be expected under the circumstances. He he clearly has post-traumatic stress disorder and some adverse consequences associated with that. Um, and, And rightfully so. I mean, he went through a very traumatic life-altering event, a very mm-hmm. sad tragedy unfolded, and you know, he nearly uh, nearly died himself of hypothermia that night, swimming in the river, trying to find Mallory, and uh, you know, losing the person that he thought was his, his soulmate and his, his lifelong partner it has been very difficult on him, and uh, but I, I applaud Anthony for his strength and his resiliency. He's a good person. Listening to the dash cam videos when he called his mom, I mean, that's every parent's worst nightmare. It was just heartbreaking. And I, is is he getting the help and the support he needs at this moment? Well, he's very blessed to have a strong family support network around him. It's very difficult for for him and others to, to talk about certain things or to, mm-hmm. to dwell on certain things. That, who am I to substitute my judgment for his in that regard? I mean, some people would uh, be very ready to avail themselves of counseling or mental health therapy or things of that sort. And, and others are, you know, uncomfortable in, 
in, in terms of availing themselves to those types of things. So he has a very good family support. Just watching him on some of the documentaries, he just seemed like such a, an outstanding young man and his ability to forgive and talk. I mean, I was just very impressed and I don't, I can't imagine anybody who would not be sympathetic. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, I mean, sadly he, he is uh, a hero in that regard. I mean, a terrible tragedy unfolded that, that none of them expected to happen. And, um, you know, he, he was very much trying to, convince Paul to take he and Valerie back to the dock and let them get an Uber or a cab ride home or just, you know, get me off this boat. And, you know, the next thing you know, the throttle goes down and he's down in the rear of the boat, huddled up, you know, for warmth. Just praying, let's get home safely. Yeah. So I want to talk about the fact that this accident happened in 2019 and it's now 2023. You know, obviously the trial was delayed because of the murder trial. Is it unusual for litigation to take this long? Well, that's sort of variable. I mean, yes, it has taken longer than it normally would or should. But a lot of that is due to the pandemic and the court system shutdown associated with COVID. Um, I, I think we were not having civil jury trials for a period of no less than 14 months. And so... You know, every county is sort of dealing with that backlog of cases that were delayed because of the pandemic. Okay, that makes sense. And also the murder trial happened a little bit more quickly than we all thought. Can you give us a breakdown of all this litigation that's happening in regards to the boating accident? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of of timing and sequence, uh, obviously the first lawsuit that was filed was on behalf of Mallory Beach and her family. And that's the one that is scheduled to go to trial in August. We'll be, you know, observing and watching the unfolding of the, the first trial in August. And, you know, that will um, at least establish, in my view, the, the fault argument. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe if um, Mallory Beach and her family, if they prevail, I don't believe the defendants in the other civil cases will be permitted to relitigate the issue of fault or liability. You, you can't relitigate the same issue between the same parties multiple times. So if a jury verdict is rendered in favor of Mallory Beach estate in the first trial, then that issue, you know, holding the wrongdoers responsible in that setting would have collateral consequences for the other pending cases in that default or liability would already have been decided. And are all of these cases under Judge Hall? They are. Is the reasoning behind this just to simplify the process? Right. For, for efficiency's sake or judicial economy, okay. it makes sense to have a single judge assigned to all of the cases. Well, before we let you go, is there anything that we've missed? There was this false narrative being promoted that you know, Parker's, quote, followed the law or the convenience store did everything that the law requires they do. I, I challenge anyone to show me exactly what law it is that they claim they were following. Uh, because the law simply, there's there's two alcohol sales statutes in Title 61. They both say it's unlawful to sell alcohol to any purchaser under the age of 21. And, it, and it's an absolute prohibition. It's not, well, it's okay in certain circumstances and not others. Uh, one of the statutes at, at issue talks about a retail uh, seller of alcohol may not sell to, may not knowingly sell beer or wine to 
a person under the age of 21. There's been some confusion, perhaps, about what does knowingly mean. What our courts have said that knowingly means is what they reasonably should have known. We have laws to protect injury victims and to promote public safety. You're never going to keep our community safe if you don't hold wrongdoers accountable when they break the law. Well, Patrick, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate hearing it from your perspective. And thank you again for coming on. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for your time. Good job, Seton. And uh, let's talk about some of the past episodes and some listener comments. One was uh, about the lack of cameras uh, at Moselle. Yeah, this listener's grandfather owns a similar property in the upstate of South Carolina, and she said she did not find it unusual. And I thought about it. Back in the beginning, there was a police report about some stolen farm equipment at Moselle. Mm -hmm. So that made me question, if, if you did have a problem with theft, maybe you would get cameras. I would. Yeah, so I, well, I mean, it's also a member of big property where the stuff was stolen from was probably not the house. No, you know, so but that, obviously, that would have been the kennel area. Yeah, that's true. Prob probably the kennel area, or maybe they have one right on the one barn or something, but I don't think so. It doesn't sound like they have anything out there. No, well, they did have some deer cams. Well, yeah, I mean, they had them on the, you know, the trails and stuff like that. Yeah. But ag again, maybe there's a reason that they didn't want cameras. Yes. Also, we had a great interview with uh, Chad McGowan. Yep, people, I've, I've had several people reach out to me and say that they thought that that was their favorite interview. So thank you, Chad, for Thanks, Chad. being such a great guest. He talked about the Nautilus lawsuit and Alex involvement in that, and that was great. And we had a really nice comment on our Facebook page, Murdoch Podcast, which was, love the podcast. You guys are great and always so grateful when dealing with negative feedback. Really looking forward to hearing you guys cover lots of other cases. All right. So here we go with a little criticism from Neil. He says, I've listened to your podcast for months now and enjoy Seton and John S. Matt Harris comes across as a 90s morning show host. Good morning, everybody. It irritates him to death. The best recent podcast was when Harris was gone and Seton was solo with John Snyder. Harris has a real problem with Eric Bland and I'm not sure why. I don't know Eric, but I've listened to him speak, and he seems to be very straight up. Maybe there's some jealousy because Harris didn't get all the media attention that Eric did during the trial. The best response to competition is to ignore them and do your job, says Neil. I agree with the ignoring. Yeah. But also, I have to think, if you actually listen to this episode, which I had to do the interview by myself with Patrick Carr, if you listen to my opening and close that I did on my own, it was horrible. It we missed that. And we wanted Dwayne and I have been thinking about you and your family this week. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, Eric Plant and I are on very friendly terms. We text on occasion. We've been on shows together. I have I don't know where he's even getting that. I mean, I was reading things out of emotion that was said by Griffin and uh Harpootlian in emotion, but I wasn't saying it. I'm just presenting this stuff. So I don't, don't know. We're going to present the facts, good, bad, whatever yeah. they are. We're just committed to presenting all sides. Well, thank you uh, for holding down the Fort Seton and Dwayne. And uh, always grateful that you listen. And we'll talk soon, friend. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. 
from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 